Father of glory, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we ask that your spirit would descend upon us all. Place your words in my mouth so that we are not forced to listen to a mere man. And open the eyes of our hearts so that we may be enlightened to the truth of your word. Lord, we ask that you would receive honor and glory in all that we say and do. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking this morning at 1 Timothy chapter 5. And normally when I start out uh, preaching, I normally read the entire passage. But if I do that right now, it will be time to go home when I finish. So what I'm going to do is take each section that we're going to be looking at uh, one at a time. So I will read the section in advance. And I want to begin by reading 1 Timothy 5 just verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Now what Paul is beginning to do right away in this chapter is he is going to liken the church to a family. And in fact, we really are a spiritual family. Ephesians 1.5, for example, says that God had predestined us to be adopted as his children, as his sons, if you will. In Ephesians uh, 2.19, Paul refers to us as the family, the household of God. And in Ephesians 3, 9 and 10, he says this, And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Administration of what mystery? The mystery of his plan of redemption, the mystery that is now revealed that our redemption comes through the cross of Christ because he bore our sins on the cross and paid our penalty. Not only has he done that, but he has given us his spirit and we are now new people who are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit in holiness before God. And this in verse 10, he says, reflects God's manifold wisdom uh, in using the church to reveal that. So the church, the family of God, is in this world to display light in the midst of a world full of darkness. And it is us who display not only the living reality of this revelation of God, this wonderful plan of redemption, but the wonderful life that is available in Christ and to all of it to the glory of God. Consequently, the devil comes against the church with all of his power and force. Everything you see going on in this culture that you feel is negative, I will tell you those are only means to an end to do damage and destroy the church. And so Paul is concerned about this in 1 Timothy 5. And right away, what he does is he, he wants to make sure that Satan does not find uh, any sort of inroads into the church because Satan will not only come against the church externally, 
through the forces of uh, the culture, whatever, he will come against the church internally, and that type of attack is really much more dangerous because it is subtle, and he will hope to bring the church into line with the world. So he can say to the world, see, they're no different. And so Paul is very concerned that as we function as a family together, uh, that we will also give the enemy no occasion to bring reproach um, against us. So 1 Timothy 5 uh, is concerned with the purity of the church uh, without causing reproach uh, in the world. And in the two verses I just read, you'll notice that what he does is he uh, brings two points to mind. Uh, he focuses on two different aspects, one with regard to older men and the other with regard to younger women. And with regard to older men, he says, do not rebuke an older man, uh, one older than Timothy, who was probably in his late 30s, perhaps early 40s. Don't rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father. And what he is really saying is respect the older man uh, in the congregation uh, as a father. Now, the Greeks and the Romans, as well as the Jewish people, always upheld due high respect uh, for a father. And I will tell you, respect is a missing quality in our culture today. Uh, Nobody respects leaders. They don't respect other people's opinions. They certainly don't respect fathers. How many of you, and I'm about to date you, how many of you remember father knows best? Well, I'll be darned. There's bunches of us in here. How many of you remember the Civil War? (laughs) Father Knows Best was a perfect example of where the entertainment media was actually uh, enforcing the values of respect for fatherhood. uh, Robert Young played the father. He was a man who displayed wisdom. He displayed kindness. And he displayed flexibility with his children, and he was respected as a father. But other family sitcoms normally portray the father as a clueless baboon. And oftentimes, or most of the time, this is a man who is displayed in such a way uh, that no one has respect for him whatsoever. Now, what we want to do in the church is we want to counter that by showing respect to one another and particularly respect uh, to the older person uh, as a father. Uh, That is one way, and we've got to avoid falling into that trap of disrespect. That's one thing that Paul was concerned about. The second thing he talks about is how to treat young women. Uh, He says, treat them as sisters, but then he adds the phrase in absolute uh, purity. Uh, Now, frankly, uh, that's another problem that is gone to seed in this culture. And the church would do well to pay close attention uh, to this particular little exhortation or admonition from the Apostle Paul. Uh, The sexual revolution which has taken root in this culture is one of the most damaging, stupid things that we ever as a culture bought into. It has caused no end 
uh, to anguish and tragedy and destruction. Uh, and the church family needs to be very careful and pay close attention to what Paul is saying here because this is one of the areas where Satan is finding the most effective inroad uh, into the church. Uh, what you have now is Satan wreaking havoc uh, and the leaders of the churches are being uh, exposed as being involved in sexual misconduct Every time you open the paper or see something on the news, you see somebody is being exposed out of the church. Now, that doesn't mean it's just the church. We obviously, all of us know, this sort of thing is being exposed all over the place. But the news media particularly loves to deal with church leaders uh, that have been caught uh, in this sort of thing. And what we have to do uh, is, first of all, we have to, number one, to say absolute purity, the first thing we have to do is avoid even the perception of wrongdoing. The second thing we need to do is avoid situations where temptation can arise because it can arise within the church as easily and as much as it arises outside of the church. Vice President Pence gave an interview some years before uh, he was uh, vice president in which he explained that he never worked late with a female employee and he never went to dinner or lunch with a woman not his wife. And for that, he was castigated by certain liberal feminists in saying that he obviously didn't like women or he was against women. Uh, of course, what they don't realize is that what he is stating uh, is tremendous wisdom because uh, Vice President Pence understands that he is a man who is subject uh, to temptation. And so he goes out of his way to make sure that no circumstances arise. I can tell you this, the ones that are criticizing him, if he had actually violated his own advice and fallen into temptation and sin, they'd have been the first to castigate him and have, ask him to be, uh, or ask that he be thrown out uh, of office. Uh, so what the church really needs to do is adopt uh, some of the wisdom of Vice President Pence. I'm not saying that the church doesn't, but we do need uh, to be very careful to make sure these sorts of circumstances don't arise. Uh, for example, church leaders uh, should not be, men should not be counseling women by themselves. Uh, it would be much better uh, if either, for example, I know if, you, if a man is counseling a woman, the door needs to be open into his office. And if possible, there needs to be another woman present uh, when that counseling occurs. Uh, it would be wise not for men and women on staff to work together uh, uh, late hours. It would be uh, also responsible and better if all of us paid attention to that, whether we're on staff in the church or not, because the enemy is wanting to undermine us, and the best way to do it right now is to show to the rest of the world that the sexual revolution is inundating the church. And this is something that the Apostle Paul is also very concerned about. When I was a, a single and uh, a teen, and it did happen, I was one at one time. Uh, I, that's not funny. I was given some, given some good advice. 
And that was this. Be clear and committed to your convictions. And avoid in advance getting in, into any situation in which passion could undermine those convictions. And I will pass that on to you, especially you young folks, uh, because uh, this sexual revolution is, as it does inundate and get into the church, it's going from young people to older people across the board. In many ways, uh, uh, the enemy can say about some churches uh, that we're no different than them. But we are because we are in Christ Jesus, and we are here to show uh, that makes a difference. All right, let's look at 1 Timothy uh, 5. I want to read 3 through 8. Now, what he's going to do is he is going to, as a family, having established that the church is a family, he is going to deal with two church family situations. First, he's going to talk about widows, and then he is going to speak to about elders. So this first section we're going to look at is going to begin to get into the discussion about widows. 1 Timothy 5.3, he says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now, she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, what we know from the, almost the beginning uh, of Scripture in the Old Testament is God has a very special concern uh, for widows. For example, uh, Deuteronomy 27, uh, verse 7, uh, see, Deuteronomy 27, verse 19, it may be up there. Uh, it says, Cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, orphan, and widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Uh, Psalm 68, 5. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. And that's just two of a number of scriptures in the Old Testament that reflects God's concern about widows. When Jesus was on the cross bearing our sin and absorbing our judgment, the Gospels reflect that he only spoke personally to two people while he was on the cross. One was to the thief who had repented, who was on the cross beside him. The other was to the Apostle John, asking him to make provision for his widowed mother. Now, if Jesus, if that's on his mind while he is hanging on the cross, that should give us some idea of his concern uh, for widows. And frankly, uh, in the first century in particular, uh, widows were often without family uh, and found themselves in poverty circumstances. The Jews 
uh, under Judaism cared for their widows. Uh, the church right away in Acts 6, 1, we see that the church was already uh, making provision uh, for uh, widows. Uh, not only that, the Greek word for widow here, now in the English word, widow means a woman who has lost her husband by death. But the Greek word for widow means a woman who has lost her husband, whether by death or by abandonment. Uh, of her husband abandoning her. Uh, and so what he tells them to do is honor uh, widows indeed. And honor um, includes support. Uh, it can include financial support uh, because we get the word honorarium uh, from honor. Uh, so he, what he then does is, and let me, let me just mention this quickly too. The Greeks, the Romans, as well as the Jewish people, always made certain that families, their own families, provided for widows. Uh, that was done even by the pagans. Uh, and so Paul is very clear that this needs to be properly done by the church. So what he does in verses 4 and 5 is he begins to give us the definition of what would be a widow indeed, uh, or in a, more specifically, what would be a true widow. Uh, and so what he does in verse 4 is he says, notice he says, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. So in other words, if she has family, children and grandchildren, those who can take care of her, Paul is saying that is their responsibility first before the church. And he's saying they need to pay back what they have received uh, in receiving the upbringing they received from uh, their parents and from their mother. He is also saying in practicing piety, in other words, holiness, practicing showing your holiness and piety by taking care of your widowed mother or grandmother. Uh, and he is saying this is acceptable to God. In other words, in showing piety, you are being obedient to God uh, in taking care of your widowed mother or grandmother and providing support for her. Uh, James 1.27 says that true religion is, involves taking care of widows and orphans. Uh, then verse 5 gives us the second criteria for the widow indeed, and that is one who is not only has no family, but has no financial resources uh, and has been left uh, in poverty. And I can give you, uh, tell you, for example, and I think I said it a minute ago, in the first century, uh, widows were frequently poverty-stricken. You remember in Luke 21, 1 through 3, Jesus sees the poor widow dropping uh, a coin into the tre treasury of the temple and remarks to his disciples, this woman just gave uh, more than all the rest of them who were dropping in huge, um, huge gifts because she gave all she had. And God doesn't look at the size of the gift. God looks at the size of the sacrifice. Uh, and Jesus points that out uh, to them. Uh, the widow in verse 5, now she who is a widow indeed, who has been left alone, 
has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Uh, I can think of a um, lady that I knew uh, who was a widow. <clears throat> when we moved to Arlington in 1958, uh, I was 14. And we were liberal church members. Uh, I'm interested in Gary's uh, uh, communion message about how he came to know the gospel. Uh, I didn't know the gospel either. I believed in Jesus. I believed in God, but nobody ever told me the gospel. And we went to a liberal church uh, when we moved here, and there were some born-again people in that church. And one of them was a lady who became close friends with my mother. And she led my mother to Christ. And then my mother turned around and prayed the rest of us into the kingdom. Now, this woman, uh, a few years later, became a widow when her husband died of a heart attack. And she, until the rest of her life, she was a widow for 35 years. Not only was she a widow, but she raised two small grandchildren on Social Security. And she was a powerful intercessor. And she was one who constantly was looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Uh, Mormons would come to the door. She would invite them in. They would go out born-again believers. Uh, she invited them in so she could give them the gospel. Uh, she noticed a tr uh, the trash men coming around to pick up her trash. One seemed unhappy every time, and so she met him one morning, gave him some coffee and donuts, and led him to Christ. Uh, this is the type of person she was. And she believed intently in the truth of the passages I read in Deuteronomy uh, 20, uh, 27, 19 and Psalm 68, 5. She believed that God was a judge of widows. And one of the things she could testify to, and this is true, and I can testify to it as well, the world takes advantage of widows. And, of course, God says in Deuteronomy 27, 19, cursed is the one who does that. She was, on one occasion, uh, she took her car to a, uh, a filling station. Everybody remember what that was? There were actually people that came out, scrubbed your windshield, and put gas in your car. She took her car to a filling station in order to have it repaired, and she was given an estimate of $32.50. When she came back to get her car, the owner of the filling station informed her uh, that he had found other stuff to do, and her bill was now $68.75. And she said, I didn't ask you to do that. He said, well, I thought it needed to be done. Well... I can't afford that. Well, if you want your car back, it's sixty-eight seventy-five. She said, all right, but I want you to know that I am a widow, and God takes care of widows. No sooner had she said that than a car on the gas island left the pump, drove off, and the hose was still in the car, in the gas tank. And it popped the hose off the pump and gas began to, gasoline began to spill out, and it rang up 68.75 right in front of you. <laughs> a few weeks later, uh, she made a claim on a homeowner's insurance, and uh, they said to her, 
we're not going to pay. We don't think it's covered. She says it clearly is covered. She's talking to a guy on the phone. He said, well, we don't think it's covered. We're not going to pay. She said, all right, but I want you to know I'm a widow, and God takes care of, and that's as far as she got. And he said, oh, yes, that's right. Never mind. I'll call. Just a minute. Let me check. And he calls back, and he says, we'll pay. So her reputation got around. But it is an example. <laughs> but it is a tremendous example of the fact that God does take care of widows. And if the widow is destitute and without family, this family, the church, will step in and take care of the widows. Now, let's look at 1 Timothy 5, 9. Oh, let me say one other thing. He says to the family in verse 8 that does not take care of a widow in their family. He said, you're worse than unbelievers. What does he mean by that? Because the pagan Romans would do as much themselves. So you're actually doing less than what the pagans uh, would have voluntarily done without being instructed in God's word. So now let's look at 1 Timothy 5, 9 through 10. Uh, it says, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself uh, to every good work. So he is drawing a distinction in a sense uh, in terms of what widows the church will support. Now, we don't quite know what he means by the list. It does indicate that it means that the widow on the list uh, would be uh, particularly recognized by the church or would have a relationship with the church. Most commentators think that when he is listing these qualifications and putting a widow on the, quote, list, that that is to qualify them uh, for support, financial support from the church. But there are some commentators who say, no, that's not the case. He, because of the qualifications he's listing, uh, the uh, where he says uh, in verse 10, a reputation for good works brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has assisted those in need. That really refers to their qualification to minister. And that Paul's statement about a widow who is entitled to receive support from the church has been stated back in 3, 4, and 5. She simply has to be without family and destitute. The commentators disagree. So I will tell you what I think. Never mind. Let's go on to something else. I think that there is a... Let's just put it this way. I think there can be a good argument made for either one. Uh, and it's entirely possible it's both. But I think a good argument can be made that this is a qualification for the widow to minister uh, through the church. Because even if the church is supporting her, she's no liability to the church because she can provide godly wisdom to younger women. And she is capable of doing like my mother's friend, tremendous intercessor on behalf of the members of the church and others who are in deep need. And I'll get to these uh, qualifications 
uh, right now. Now, first of all, at least 60. All right, now today, 60 is the new 30, right? I'm 40, right? It's not the same thing. If you were 60 in the first century, you were elderly. You really were. Uh, the average lifespan in a Roman uh, Empire in the time of Jesus was 29. Now, that dealt with a high mortality rate for children, but many, many, many people died in their 20s and 30s uh, because of plagues, because of various things of that nature. There were people that did live into their 60s and 70s. Uh, Anna, for example, is an example in Luke 2, 36 through 38, is an example of an elderly widow. She was 84. She had been a widow for, who knows, 40 or 50 years, and she was an intercessor who dwelt in the temple, and she was pro had a prof prophetic gift. And she came up to Joseph and Mary and spoke to them about Jesus, whom they had brought as a baby uh, into the temple uh, to uh, on, I think it was his eighth day, they brought him into the temple. I th it might have been had to do with circumcision. I'll have to go back and look at that. But they had brought him into the temple to dedicate him, and she came and spoke to them about him. Now, those are the types of widows that are strong in the Lord, godly, and they are able to minister. But certainly those widows would need support if they don't have any for themselves. Uh, a faithful wife, the, the wife of one husband. She was a faithful wife while she was married. Uh, she has a reputation for good works. He breaks that down uh, into uh, brought up children, hospitality to strangers. She talks about washing feet, but what that really is saying is that she was a humble servant. Uh, she served humbly uh, and that she assisted the afflicted. Um, I can give you uh, an interesting story from Alexander McLaren. McLaren was a preacher in Scotland in the late eight, 19th century. And he was, he's written numerous commentaries. Uh, he's very a fine writer in terms of his commentaries on the scripture. But he was visiting with a woman one time who was a widow in his congregation. He was visiting her in her home. And as they began to speak, uh, she began to dab her eyes with her, uh, her uh, apron because she was weeping. And he said, what is the matter? Why are you weeping? She said, oh, I've done so little for Jesus. When I was a wee lass, I gave my life to him and I surrendered myself to him. And now, after all these years, I feel like I've done so little for him. And McLaren said, what have you done? She said, well, all my, all my life, I've fixed three meals a day. I've cleaned the house. I've washed clothes. I've raised my children. He said, tell me about your children. Well, I have four sons. You know that. Uh, I named them after the Gospels writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said, Tell me about Mark. Well, he, she said, you know about Mark. You ordained him last spring. He's in China as a missionary. And what about Matthew, his older brother? Well, he's going to China, too, to, spend, to join his brother as a missionary. And Luke? Well, Luke's in a mission station in Africa. And John? Well, John has a heart to go to Africa and join Luke, but he told me the Lord told him that he was to remain here and care for me until he took me home. And then he could go to Africa. McLaren was silent for a bit. And then he said, I can't wait to see your reward in heaven. 
See, that's a perfect picture of this qualification uh, that uh, Paul is talking about. Now, he does say, and let's go into 11 real quick. He does say, but refuse to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires and disregard for Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation uh, because they have set aside the pre their previous pledge. At some time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not appropriate to talk about. And he says, therefore, I want younger widows to get married now. He's and raise children. Now, we're probably talking about a specific situation here where a young, young widows in the grief of having lost their husband uh, dedicate themselves, make a vow to Christ. But then they begin, in terms of trying to minister, they're probably not as mature spiritually as the older widow. They start ministering, but then they start uh, wishing to, that they could be married again. Sensual desires is not limited to sexual intimacy. It's the desire for companionship of a husband and for children. And Paul is saying, don't get into the trap of trying to do this for Christ all you wind up doing is backing off because in your heart you're really longing for something other than Christ. And he said, go ahead, get married. Uh, you shouldn't be going around trying to minister when you've got this in your heart. Does this apply to every young widow? No. And let me say this, young widow or old widow, the church owes them some support. It may not be financial, but it would certainly be moral support. It would certainly be spiritual support. Young widows often have young children, and they need all the help they can get. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, financial. And in terms of coming around the widow and giving her comfort, that should be other women uh, in doing that. Uh, but any widow in the church should be in some way supported by the church. Maybe not financially, maybe that should be listed to a certain level, and it should be, those that have none. But any widow should be uh, supported in the church. All right, let's go to the third category, and that's elders. Uh, and that is going to be 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 25. He says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially by those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox uh, while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, that's interesting. That's stuck right in the middle of what he's talking about. I would suggest this. Timothy has a unique situation. He is an apostolic delegate. He therefore has authority 
over the church in that sense and authority over elders in that sense. And it is apparent that he was trying to maintain a higher standard by abstaining from wine. And I suspect what Paul is saying is you've got stomach troubles. Wine was sometimes regarded as medicinal in certain situations. Don't hesitate to drink wine. Also, in those days, it was quite dangerous to drink their water. Uh, you could get sick, all kinds of disease. So I think he's just quickly encouraging him. Then picking up in 24, the sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, uh, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. All right. The scripture clearly teaches that leadership in the church is to be shared leadership. Uh, and frankly, uh, there are three words that describe the same person that describe the elder, uh, pastor, overseer, and elder. Paul says this in Acts 20 when he's speaking to the elders from Ephesus. He says, verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Skip to verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own hand. In other words, as a pastor, the elder is a shepherd. As an overseer, he is the one that rules and has authority. As an elder, he is an example of spiritual maturity. Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy 3 deals with the qualifications of elders, but chapter 5 now deals with the congregation's obligation to elders, and he sets that out uh, in four categories. First, honoring the elder. Second, protecting the elder. Third, rebuking the elder. And four, sele uh, selecting elders. Uh, first, as regards to honoring elders in verses 17 and 18, he says, the, honor, the elders who rule well uh, are entitled to double honor. Uh, in other words, those who serve with excellence. He is not drawing a distinction when he says, particularly those who work at preaching and teaching. He is referring to all elders, not just those who preach and teach, who serve with excellence are entitled to double honor. What does he mean by that? Uh, we're not sure what he means by that, but one thing we do know that he means is that they are entitled uh, to uh, respect and obedience. Hebrews 13, um, in Hebrews 13, verse 7, he says this, uh, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Verse 13, he says this, uh, verse 17, I'm sorry, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls and those who will give an account and, and the, although as those who will give account, let them do this with joy and not with grief. Uh, this would be, for this would be unprofitable for you. And of course, Peter says uh, in 1 Peter uh, 5 verse 1, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as yet lording it over. 
humility is a quality of eldership, not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be an example in the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, he will, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. So what he is saying is, is that the elders who serve with excellence are entitled to double honor. And then he is carving out, he is not excluding, but he is carving out in particular those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Preaching folks, and well, let me just say this, the various elders, and this is true of our elder body, uh, those of us who are elders, we all have different gifts and abilities. Uh, and some of those gifts involve teaching and preaching, and others involve other aspects of shepherding. None are inferior to the other. And some preach and teach frequently, and others not as frequently. And when he talks about preaching, what he means is a proclamation in exhortation and admonition, which calls for a heart response to God from those who hear. Teaching means instruction. And it can be a bulwark against false teaching and heresy. So when you have an elder who is giving his full time and attention, it's full time ministry for him, Paul says he should be compensated. Uh, and he cites both Old Testament and New Testament. Interestingly enough, he cites Luke 10.7 when he says the worker is worth his wages. Um, because um, Luke's, you know, travels with him. So it's interesting that he supports Luke's uh, writing of Scripture as being scriptural. Uh, second thing in terms of protecting elders, and I'm going to cover two and three together, protecting elders uh, and rebuking elders. Let me say this, folks. This is my opinion. You won't find that I know of. You won't find this in Scripture. In my opinion, Satan deliberately tempts church leaders, elders, and pastors to sin for the express purpose of exposing them. Because when he exposes them, he does much greater damage when an elder is caught in sin. And so Paul is, and let me say this too, if he can't get them to sin, then he will raise false rumors about them. Hence Paul says, do not accept an accusation. In other words, don't entertain it. Don't keep it in your mind unless you get accusation supported by two or three witnesses. Now, that's Deuteronomy 19.15. If you get those accusations, though, you are to investigate them. And you are to investigate them privately. Now, if the allegation is one that involves criminal conduct, that will necessitate the church upon the discovery that this is, this is actually valid. That has to be turned into the police. In fact, that elder needs to be con uh, confronted immediately. Uh, that is not something you keep under the carpet. And that's been a big problem for some churches. Uh, but if you conclude from the investigation that there is sin in this elder, and Paul doesn't say what the sin is, but I would suggest it at least has to do with resulting in undermining his qualifications as an elder. If that is the case, then you are to rebuke that elder. And you are to rebuke that elder publicly, not privately. And frankly, that elder, even if he's repentant, has lost 
the right to serve as such. Uh, that would be true of pastors and elders. Pastors and elders are really, uh, in a sense, synonymous. Uh, they're rebuked, uh, and Paul says why? That the others might fear not only other elders, uh, but also members of the congregation. Uh, current, uh, in the law currently, uh, from, a, from a secular standpoint, the criminal law uh, uh, basically questions whether or not deterrence is of any value. Uh, in punishment, and they like to cite the pickpockets that were picking pockets of people in the crowd watching pickpockets in 18th century England being hanged, and they were saying, ha, no deterrence. Well, necessity is a little different, but the scripture believes that deterrence is effective, and I want to tell you that it is. Uh, so the elder that is rebuked publicly uh, is no longer qualified to be an elder uh, as a rule. And what amazes me is pastors and elders that are uh, caught at church, rebuked publicly, and then seem to be able to find a job in another church uh, doing the same thing. And we've been reading about that sort of thing. And so the church has got to be very careful. All right, finally, and I'm going to need to wrap it up. Finally, um, don't lay hands on someone uh, hastily. Uh, lay hands refers to ordination. In other words, make sure that this person is qualified and fits the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. And if you do not do that and they prove to be a problem, you will be responsible for their sin. This is what Paul is saying. If you don't do your job and you bring someone in who is not qualified to be an elder, you will be responsible uh, for the problem that arises. And he's saying their sins in 24, their sins, there are some, the sins proceed before them, and others they trail behind. In other words, those whose sins are obvious don't even bother in assessing and investigating. And those whose sins are not obvious, effective assessment should bring that out. And then finally he says, uh, good works cannot be hidden, and even those that are not obvious will not be concealed. So what the assessment of an elder should be is to determine both of those aspects, uh, whether hidden sins or hidden good works, and you want to make sure that they're qualified. Let me close with this statement because this is what Paul is really concerned about. Satan desires to use mistakes in this area to do harm to the church and to destroy uh, the credibility of the church and to dishonor Christ. And he is trying to make sure that we are guarded and protected against this while at the same time doing the right job and meeting needs that are important. Let me close you with 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, verse 11 and 12. Well, since I'm in 1 Peter 3, no wonder it's not saying that. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. I think that is exactly what Paul 
is most concerned about. All right, we need to stop. Um, let me uh, remind you that there's connection coffee in the back, I think over on this side. Uh, if Gary is here, I know he would want to meet people who are coming for the first time. Uh, and there's Jonathan over there with him, right? And we asked the elder couples if they would, and staff couples if they would come down and be available for prayer uh, to all who have a need and let us close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, a passage that is very practical in its application. Lord, our desire above everything else is to live lives as members of the church family that do give you glory and show light into the darkness of this world. Lord, our desire is to be sensitive to the things that the devil would try to use to bring reproach not only on the church but against Christ himself. Lord, I thank you that you are Lord of heaven and earth and you ultimately will prevail. You ultimately will bring your kingdom to pass and it will be a visible kingdom full of glory and goodness and love. And we will give you honor and glory, majesty and dominion in this age and in the age to come. In Jesus' name, amen.